The sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. 1 verse 6. I'm going to read to you, however, beginning at verse 3 and go through verse 11. So Philippians 1 verse 6, that is our sermon passage. But I'll read to you beginning at verse 3 and go through verse 11. This will provide a little broader context uh, for the sermon passage this morning. First, before we get there, I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, the first half of chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. This is our scripture reading. This will provide uh, a little more uh, context for us uh, as we seek to understand Philippians 1.6. So again... Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1-15 is our scripture reading. Philippians 1, 6 is our sermon passage. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. And now turning, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, but our focus on verse 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for these small portions of it that we have heard today. And now, O Lord, we call upon your spirit. We pray that he would help us to understand. We pray that he would give us the sense of what you meant when you first set these words down to page. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. But Lord, more importantly than thanking you for him, we thank you for the way in which you used him. We thank you, O Lord, for how you saw fit to bring about good works through his ministry, through his life. Please bless us now, O Lord, as your word is proclaimed. Be with the one who preaches and those who hear. Please guide us, dear Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after last week's passage, verses 3 to 5, in which Paul expresses to the Philippians his thanksgiving to God for them because of their partnership with him in the gospel, he now assures them in verse 6 that what God has begun in them, he will complete up to all the way through to the day of Christ Jesus. That is, to the day when he returns, what we might also refer to in shorthand as the day of judgment, when Jesus Christ comes back. Now, Philippians 1.6 is a very well-known verse, and many of you probably have memorized it, either deliberately or simply because you've heard it repeated so often over the years through your life. And because it is so well-known, it is very often outside of its surrounding context. The verse has been understood because of this in ways that most likely weren't meant by the Apostle Paul. I say that carefully, and I want to say it delicately, but it's one of those verses that you probably know very well. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You probably know that, but do you know the surrounding context of the verse? And does the surrounding context govern how the verse needs to be interpreted? And is the verse rightly interpreted the way that we so often think of it as being interpreted. Now, this isn't the only verse in the book of Philippians that this has happened with. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you know the verse, I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me? I'm sure most of us have heard this. This is, this is the verse. It's the life verse of the fellowship of Christian athletes, right? How many of you, though, knew this verse was in the book of Philippians before I told you? How many of you remembered that? How many of you who knew that it was in the book of Philippians knew that its surrounding context was one of Paul talking about not running a race, not a physical endurance, but about the persecution and the hardship that he has faced and how in the face of those hardships and suffering he has found contentment. Now, often I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which is Philippians 4.13. It's used by Christian athletes to help them prepare for sporting events. I can do this. I'm going to score that goal on the football field. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. But I can say with absolute certainty that the Apostle Paul, but also, I believe, the Holy Spirit, who is the primary and original author of the verse, did not have American football in mind when that verse was set down to paper. Now often our verse this morning, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, is understood as 
a wonderful assurance of God bringing to completion the good work of salvation he has begun in them. That's, that's probably, I would venture to guess that most of us here view it that way. We understand it that way. But is that the right way to understand it? And, and how do we know how it's supposed to be understood? Well, there are many commentators who understand the verse this way as well. And here's the challenging part. It is true that God is both the founder and the finisher of our faith, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says. He, he's, he's the one who originates our faith, and he brings it to perfection. He completes it. But that may not be exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Philippians 1.6, though that's what it sounds like he's getting at. Now, our Scott Clark, many of you are familiar with who he is. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary, California. He's written about the importance of, of the surrounding context of any given verse. And, and in one of his writings, he said, he said this, One way to be sure to handle the text of Scripture well and accurately is to place it in its original context. Now, in this, uh, I need to place that statement in its original context, because otherwise I could just rip it out of context and make it mean something that our Scott Clark didn't mean. But there he's talking about both it, it, the context uh, that is surrounding it in terms of the, what's there in the letter, the surrounding verses, the surrounding book, the surrounding uh, you know, the genre, Paul's uh, wider letters to the churches uh, in uh, the Mediterranean area, but also its context in, in history. What was going on in the life of Paul when he wrote these things? So those, he's, he's talking about context, not just about the surrounding verses, or the surrounding words around a particular verse, but what was going on in the life of Paul that caused him, and, and, the, and, the, and the life of the church at Philippi that caused him to write those words? Now, our salvation begins and ends with God, but is that what is being said in the passage this morning, Philippians 1.6? It may be a case of the right doctrine, getting the right doctrine from the wrong passage, the wrong text. And so let's look at the broader context, the, the, the context of the surrounding verses. We see that Paul, uh, as we've already been reminded, he's been remarking to the Philippians how thankful he is for their partnership with him in the gospel. And he ends verse 5 by saying, from the first day until now, from the first day until now. He goes on to say in verses 7 and following that it is right for him to feel this way about them, this, this gratitude, this thankfulness to the Lord because of them. He says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he tells them in verse 9 that he prays that their love may abound more and more. And then in verse 10, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's that phrase again, the day of Christ which we've already said at the very beginning. That's a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the day of judgment. Now in verses 3 to 11, you can see it in the English, it's there in the original language as well, Paul uses the words you or your ten times in these verses. And in each and every case, he is speaking in the plural. He's, he's talking to Y'all, all of them, all the folks there in uh, the church at Philippi. He's writing to them as a group, not to a particular individual. Now, if Paul were speaking about salvation, and specifically one aspect of salvation, regeneration, and subsequent sanctification in verse 6, it would be logical for him to be speaking in the singular. Not necessarily, but... but it would be logical for him to be doing so. He wouldn't have to speak that way, but sanctification is a progressive work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an individual believer. 
The good work that has been begun in the Philippian church is a church-wide work. Now, of course, that work involves individuals, such as Lydia, the first con- convert to Christianity on European soil. It involves individual believers like the Philippian jailer, who we have to presume is still there in the Philippian church. But what helps to understand Paul's thought a little more fully is by making a connection between the word began in verse 6 back to Paul's use of first day in verse 5. There in verse 5, Paul is referring to their participation in the gospel from the first day. He's reflecting on those early days. Remember, he's writing to them 12 or 13 years later, and he's reflecting back, and he's talking about the first days when he was with them. We read about it in Acts chapter 16 a few weeks ago. He's with them, and then he goes off. He's jailed. They take care of him. Lydia invites him back. He and Silas are able to stay with Lydia in her house, and then they're imprisoned. And from the very beginning, they have partnered with Paul. And the word translated he who began in verse 6, it's found only one other time in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul writes, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now there, of course, Paul is denouncing the Judaizers who have come to Galatia and have stirred up trouble by convincing people that they need to resume the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And they're making their salvation conditional upon that. He's saying in Galatians 3.3 what he's so often assumed to be saying in Philippians 1.6. But what Paul is saying in both places, in Galatians 3.3 and Philippians 1.6, is that God is the prime agent who is at work there in those churches. He's the main one who's working. But, But what is the work that's being done? And is it the same? Well, in Galatians 3.3, there's no mention of good works there. Paul refers to the fact that what, was, what has begun with them was begun by the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't refer to what was begun as a good work. In other words, he doesn't refer to their, their regeneration as a good work. In fact, when the words good work or good works are used in the New Testament, and, and they're used nearly 20 times in the New Testament, Those words refer, without exception, to the work of people, and most often Christians. And so, for instance, we read in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's not talking there about Uh, regeneration. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about any aspect of salvation. Justification, adoption, uh, sanctification, glorification. He's not talking about that when he says good works. Also in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, which we, well, we didn't read that earlier. We read it very frequently. 2.10, he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so by that, we understand that even the good works that we do, that they don't come about as our own idea. God has prepared those good works for us. Again, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, you can read there, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good. That's, that's the same word 
Let us do good works, do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now that's just three of the near 20 uses of the phrase good work or good works in the New Testament. There are many more instances where the phrase is used, and always it is used to refer to what people do. And for Christians, what they do by the power of God. It isn't used to refer to what God does in a person when he regenerates that person. It doesn't, it's not used to refer to what God does in a person when that person is saved. We might, might say it in, in our sort of southern part, when he gets saved. It's not referring to that, but rather what a person does by the power of God after he or she has been born again, after they've got saved. So then the good work Paul is referring to in Philippians 1.6 is most likely the Philippian church's good work of partnership in the gospel, which was initiated by the Holy Spirit and will be carried through to completion by the Holy Spirit up to the point when Jesus Christ returns again. And, and that gets us to the second part of our understanding. What Paul is talking about is the church itself. Not one individual believer. Those individual believers, whether or not Paul knew it, they weren't going to be alive until the day of Jesus Christ, until his second coming, until his return. Now, there, there's reason to think that Paul might have, have hoped for the return of Jesus Christ, just as Christians in every age have hoped for, have longed for, have, have been uh, anxiously awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. But the fact is that those believers to whom Paul writes, they're not going to be living at the time that Jesus Christ comes back. But why is it so important that we make this distinction? Well, for one reason, it's very important to, uh, for us to try to understand exactly what a passage means. Again, we can have a right doctrine and the belief that salvation is a work of the Lord by the Holy Spirit in a believer's life from beginning to end, that is a right doctrine. We're not disputing that at all. What is in dispute, or at least what's being called into question here, is whether this particular passage so supports that doctrine. To say that a passage is referring to one doctrine when it's actually referring to another doctrine causes us to neglect the doctrine that it's actually supporting, right? So, so what doctrine is this passage, if, if we're saying it's not having to do with individual salvation? Then what doctrine is Paul talking about here? Well, in this instance, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, if the focus uh, is always on God's work of salvation, from effectual calling to regeneration to justification to adoption to glorification, sanctification, all of those things, then we miss the fact that God is the primary agent of our good works. We miss the fact that when the church does a good thing, it is actually God doing that good thing through the church. Understanding Philippians 1.6 this way would help to prevent us from trying to take credit for what God is doing through us, either corporately as a, as a body or individually. Because Paul is saying that the good work that they did in partnering with him in the gospel specifically, that is a work of God. And specifically, if we had to pin it down, it would be a work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one who is who began that good work. He's the one who's going to see it through to completion. And this is especially helpful for us in this time of virtue signal, signaling, right? Where everybody loves to point to their social justice warrior credentials. They love to point to the fact that they're so good. What is your church doing? What do you do? I don't know. Go to church and worship the Lord and support the proclamation of the gospel. And that's not enough. Well, Paul says it is. And when you do that, when you partner with the gospel, you're doing the work that the Holy Spirit has begun in you. And you can't take credit for it. If I point to myself and all of the good things that I've done, if I walk around very proud and puffed up and talk about the social causes that I have, uh, have adopted in my life, that robs glory from the Lord. I am seeking to take glory from Him and add it or put it on myself. It is a form of idolatry where I am at the center not only of my world but of everyone else's. I want to make you think I'm great. And in the process, perhaps put you in your place to a certain degree. If I point to myself and to all the good things that I've done, it probably means that I'm only doing those things so I can get the accolades and, and glory, which probably means, that it probably I'm using very, very loosely here, probably means that I'm not doing them by the power of the Holy Spirit, but by my own power. So, what does this mean? Practically speaking, how does it help? Well, one way that it helps, or perhaps another way that it helps us as a church, is to realize that churches come and go. The church at Philippi is no longer in existence. Perhaps two or three or four or five hundred years from now, Mid-Cities Presbyterian Church won't be in existence. I'm certain that it'll make it at least another hundred years. Churches come and go. But the fact of the matter is that the work of the church continues on. Because the work of the church is not dependent upon any one local body. It's dependent upon the Holy Spirit who works through His people to ensure that things such as gospel missionary work go on so that, that, so that people are hearing the call of the Lord. If you are truly a Christian, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit in you and you will do good works. And what Paul is hinting at here in Philippians 1.6 is that you will do good works and you probably won't even be aware of it. Because the Spirit is working through you in the church to carry out His purposes and His plans. You are partnering in the gospel and you, you don't even know it. By being a part of a body of Christ... When Paul came to Philippi and he preached the gospel and those initial people believed and a church was established, somehow they decided they needed to support Paul and his missionary work. What on earth possessed them? Well, it wasn't a possession at all. It was they possessed the Holy Spirit. He was given to them as a gift. That's the only way that they could know how they should do that. And, and for the Philippians, it wasn't just a one-time gift. It was regular support for over a decade. 
They did it because the Spirit was working through them. He began it. He superintended it. He will see it through to completion. And that means that it it doesn't matter whether you are alive. It doesn't matter whether this church is still in existence when Jesus Christ returns. The guarantee is that He will ensure that the gospel is proclaimed. He will do it without fail. Paul is encouraging them in their support. He's encouraging them in their partnership in the gospel. But he is also showing them that it is not something for which they can take credit. The Philippians understood at an intuitive level, but really because the Holy Spirit moved in them, what Jesus taught in Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42. You can look at that now. You can look at it this afternoon. Matthew 10, 40 to 42. Read it and see if this is the way you thought of that passage. When Jesus told his disciples, whoever receives you, receives me, and that it ends... Whoever gives the least of these a cup of cold water in my name. Remember that? Well, according to Craig Blomberg, he says that that passage in Matthew 10, 40 to 42, means this, that they were affording material help to those who preach in the name of Jesus, and this demonstrates acceptance of the missionary's message at the spiritual level. When you, when you give... When you support a missionary, when you support missionary endeavors, whether that is in foreign lands or here at home, to put it just more basic even than that, when you support the proclamation of the gospel, that is, is in a sense, you are accepting the message of the one who is proclaiming at a basic spiritual level. You accept it and you want to promote it. That's, That's what... Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, verses 40 to 42, that's what the Philippians understood at a basic, intuitive, spiritual level. They accepted Paul's message. And they wanted to to make sure that other people got to hear Paul's message. And so they gave in order for that to happen. Now this is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 8. The passage we read... uh, before the sermon, when he's telling the Corinthian church about the Macedonian church's generosity, he says there in the, in the second half of that passage that we read, um, say verses 8 to 15 or so, he's, he's wanting to, to spur them on to good works. He's pointing out what the Macedonian churches have done. He's talking about how the Macedonian churches gave out of their poverty. And he's wanting the Corinthian church to, to, to jump in, to, to pitch in. And he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 2 and 3, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, this is the Macedonian churches, which would include the church at Philippi and others, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. In other words, he who began a good work in them, It wasn't that Paul expected them to give. They just gave. The outside observer might say that they gave spontaneously, but we know that they gave because the Holy Spirit directed them to give. The Holy Spirit caused it. By their actions, the Macedonian churches, including Philippi, proved that they had accepted Paul's missionary message at the spiritual level. They accepted it. They knew that it was true. They knew that it had to get out there. And the Corinthians at this point had not quite accepted that. 
And part of what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand by pointing to the Macedonian churches is that their lack of support, their, their stinginess in this particular case, it's actually rooted in their failure fully to accept Paul's gospel message. Now, now we understand, we teach, we believe that our good works are not a prerequisite for salvation. Our good works don't cause our salvation. Our good works are a result of our salvation. And what this passage is teaching us is that our good works aren't anything that we have, have ginned up in ourselves. Our good works are the result of the Holy Spirit working through the body of Jesus Christ. Good works are merely the fruit of saving faith, the byproduct of having the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And just as fruit on a tree gives evidence that that tree is alive, so good works give evidence that we have living faith. Paul is telling the Philippians, these saints at Philippi, that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. He who began a good work. He is encouraging them and he is letting them know that that good work is not dependent upon their continuation in it. They will pass on. They will die. And the Lord will continue that good work that He began in them to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back to judge the living and the dead. He is telling them that they, the church at Philippi, are being used by God to bring people to saving faith and that's a privilege. Do you think about that? God is using you to bring people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Just by you being a part of the body of Christ. By being here. You're supporting it. You're promoting the gospel. He's using you. The church. Mid-cities. Presbyterian church. What a privilege that is. What a great blessing. And why would he do such a thing? He could have done it by so many more efficient means than by using frail and weak human beings through the, the folly of the preaching of the gospel. He's seen fit to call sinners to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance for their sins. God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereignly in control of salvation. He brings lost sinners to repentance and faith. And the primary way that he has chosen to do so is through the church. He uses people like you and me to draw sinners to himself. So, we can still get there. If you understand Philippians 1.6, if you've always thought of it in terms of how God is working out your salvation from beginning to end, well, though this verse isn't primarily about that, you can still get to the doctrine through this verse. How is that? Because God is just giving you the bigger picture. Yes, salvation, individual salvation, is the work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. But God has seen fit to use churches like the church at Philippi and the church here in Bedford, Texas, and all around the world. He has seen fit to use churches for that end. It is God who will do it. And so people who, 
they read this verse, perhaps, yeah, they, they yank it out of its context, they, they make it mean something slightly different than what Paul intended. They're not, they're not so far off. But they're missing the bigger picture, a more glorious picture in many ways. The picture of how the Holy Spirit works in his church to ensure the salvation of his elect. And he does so sovereignly by his power. God used the church to draw you to Christ. God placed you in this church, and now he uses you in this church to draw other people to Christ. And it is a work that God the Spirit began, and it is a work that he will complete all for his glory and praise and honor. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do indeed thank you. We thank you for the way that you have seen fit to use your church to do good works. One of which is to partner in the gospel with you. We thank you that this is not the work of an individual. It's not my work. It's nothing that any one of us have done in our own lives to initiate salvation or nothing that we've done in anyone else's lives. But we thank you, dear Lord, that you have given us the message to proclaim and that you have given us the means by which we may proclaim it. We thank you, dear Lord, for salvation in Christ Jesus alone. We pray that we as a church, we as a body, we as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would remain partners with you in the gospel. We pray, O Lord, that we would keep our eyes on, on the prize, that is, on salvation, on eternal life with you, but not only for ourselves, dear Lord, but for others. We pray, Father, that we would have a desire that others might be partakers in this good news. We pray, dear Lord, that we would not seek to compare ourselves to others. We pray, dear Lord, that we wouldn't even be aware of our good works, lest we be tempted to arrogance and bragging. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to serve you in humility and love, to love you, to love our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>